Colossians chapter 1, it's page number 983. If you're using the Bible there in the seat in front of you, we're going to read verses 28 and 29 here, and then we will go to the Lord in prayer. Look at verse 28. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Let's pray. Well, Father, thank you for bringing us to this day where we can set aside both this morning and this evening as a time for us to, as a church family, think about and consider what it is you have for us in the future. We have been thinking about these things for three years now. We have been talking about these things, both publicly and privately, for some time, constantly just trying to understand your timing when you would seemingly bring all the pieces together, and we believe that time is now. And so I pray that as we sort of review this morning where we have been, where our thoughts have been, what has come to bear in the time since, that you will Help us to think, not just your thoughts, but to think the way you think. Jesus, in Mark, we have seen that the kingdom you were bringing is not like the kingdom of men. It's very different. The values are seemingly reversed. And we want to think about your kingdom the way you do. And we want to see ourselves as a part of that kingdom in the way that you would see it. And so I pray that our hearts would be in the right place and that our actions would be humble attempts to fulfill this very thing that Paul speaks of here, that, that we are going to try to work, to toil, to struggle with all the energy that you work in and through us. It's not ours, it is yours to reach Hampton Roads with the gospel, to see people, men and women, children made perfect in Jesus Christ. So I pray your blessing on our time this morning. May it clearly bring glory and honor to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, I've been uh, looking forward to today for a few weeks now. If you are visiting with us this morning or if you don't really know what today represents, today is the day that we are addressing the vision document that we put out on uh, the city. That's our back-end website a couple of Sundays ago. Between what we do this morning and this evening, our attempt is to lay out for you uh, a vision of what we see for Cornerstone here in the future, as well as an actionable plan for how we're going to do our part to reach Hampton Roads with the gospel. And I don't normally tell you the titles of my sermons because they're normally really boring and dumb. They're just for me, not for anyone else. But I have titled today's sermon the same thing that I titled that document that we put out to you, and that is The Future is Now. And the significance of that title may be lost on many of you, but there will possibly be a few of you at least in here who may have picked up on a play, of wor play on words that is included there. Back in early 2013, we took eight Sundays in March and April to preach through a series that we entitled The Foundation and Future of Cornerstone. Now that sounds kind of dramatic as if it should maybe have a theme song, uh, but you know, in all fairness, it it actually was kind of dramatic for us because it represented a turning point for us as a church. And to help you understand why that series back in early 13 represented a turning point for us as a church, I want to kind of retell the story of Cornerstone a little bit, at least in part, in order to set the stage for what we're going to do today. I want to take you back to Thursday, July 10th, 2008, 
at approximately 1 p.m. in the afternoon. This was the time that Frank Skurdy and Ed Hensler, Jordan, myself, a guy named Randy Hilton, for those of you who remember him, began our very first session of our very first leadership retreat. The five of us left on a Thursday afternoon, and we drove up to Williamsburg, where we planned on spending a couple of days, about two and a half days, just in secluded prayer and conversation about a whole bunch of issues and topics that were very important to the life and health of Cornerstone at that time. Now, whether you were here or not at that time, and whether or not you realize it, Everyone in this room is to this day affected by things that came out of that particular leadership retreat. For example, the reason we are sitting in this room this morning is kind of extrapolated out from that retreat because it was at that retreat where we decided that we wanted to leave Corporate Landing Elementary School. The, the school was giving us signals that maybe they were going to be done with us being there. And so trying to like <laughs> be careful about that, we started thinking, well, we need to get a new space. We couldn't afford to buy a space. We thought, well, we'll lease one. So we began a multi-year process of trying to find a space here in Hampton Roads where we could lease. And in the midst of that, we found this space, but we instead of leasing it, we decided to buy it. So, so you're here as a result of those decisions. There are other things, though, that you may not be uh, so familiar with, and, and I will uh, show you one of them. Uh, our first item of discussion at that retreat, here we go, which we started at approximately 1 o'clock that afternoon, was a discussion on the purpose and vision of Cornerstone. If you're curious what item one was, it's, we were five men, it was lunch. It was food. Uh, <laughs> item two, though, item two of the uh, meeting was the vision for Cornerstone. And as you can see, I was leading that particular part of the meeting. Uh, you can see what we had identified as being the focus of that time. We were trying to answer two specific questions. What is our purpose as a church? And at the same time, we wanted to think through where we saw ourselves in 3, 5, 10, and 25 years. And the result that we hoped to achieve through all of that was to draft a vision statement and a long-term plan. We were very ambitious. Uh, that would guide Cornerstone into the future. Well, we talked. And if we follow the agenda as it was written, and I'm pretty sure knowing us we did, uh, we spent a whole four hours on those questions and on that conversation. And after four long hours of talking and discussing and writing things on a flip chart, we came up with what has to be the most embarrassing purpose statement that any church has ever written. And I'm going to show it to you for those of you who have never seen it. Some of you have. Here it is. Cornerstone Bible Church exists to magnify the one true God by proclaiming the person and work of Jesus Christ, relying on the sufficiency of the scriptures, unifying around the centrality of the gospel, and encouraging one another to godly living. Now, there is a part of me that is hoping right this moment that as you're sitting there looking at this, you're, you're asking yourself the question, what's so embarrassing about that? Well, let me be clear, it's not the content that is embarrassing to me. I mean, to this day, I hope that everything we do here at Cornerstone magnifies the one true God. I hope that everything we do is proclaiming the person and work of Christ and, and relying on the sufficiency of Scripture and unifying around the gospel and encouraging one another to godly living. From a, from a content perspective, all of these things are good and true, and I hope they will always, always be true of us here at Cornerstone. So, it's not the content that's embarrassing. Here is what is embarrassing. What's embarrassing is that we came up with it in four hours. I mean, just 
being direct. You see, while I'm, I'm clearly no expert on how organizations should be managed and, and run, and particularly on how purpose statements should be drafted, whether they're businesses or civic groups or churches or whatever they may be, I am pretty sure that a purpose statement that actually means anything is not the kind of thing that can be put together after an initial four-hour conversation, at least not one that's going to take you anywhere. You see, that was the problem with this statement. It didn't mean anything to us. We agreed with all of the content. We, we were talking about and discussing items that we all were very clearly together on and, and wanted for our church, but, but even though we all agreed on these things, they, they weren't the kind of statements that were going to guide us into the future or give us a direction to go or lead us as to how we should move from there. And I've come to believe, you know, as I've had time to reflect on the last you know, eight years or so of, of, from this moment, I've come to believe that those kinds of purpose statements are not the kind that can be drafted in hours. You, you have to have months, maybe even years, to find that kind of a purpose that's going to drive you into the future and give you a direction to go, not just for hours. So, so this statement here was just an expression of things that we all agreed on. That was really all it was, rather than a true purpose statement. But of course, at the moment... We didn't understand that. At the moment, it looked good enough to us, and so we presented it to the church body. And some of you sitting in this room voted on that statement as being the official purpose statement of Cornerstone Bible Church back in September of 2008. I will not ask you to raise your hand if you were a part of that. But I would um, dare to venture that the vast majority of us in this room have no memory of that. Don't remember voting on it. We don't remember the statement itself. And it, it never came up again. Uh, <laughs> Do you see the problem? you see the problem in that original attempt to, to pr present a purpose? It, it didn't guide us into the future, and so it didn't matter. Now, our questions that we were asking, what's our purpose, and where do we want to be in 3, 5, 10, 25 years, these were good questions. And our desire to have an answer to those questions was good and right, but just like so many other things in the past uh, eight and a half years, we have uh, we failed. And so for the next year, year and a half after that, all conversation about the vision, the future, the purpose of Cornerstone, it basically died. And the reason why it basically died, this is going into 2009 now, the reason why it basically died is because we were too busy plugging holes in what seemed like, at that moment, a sinking ship. That's the analogy I have used before, though Ed is shaking his head in disagreement with me. Uh, but he and I continue to disagree on that. My fear at that time, speaking personally, Ed, was that Cornerstone was dying. I mean, you go back to late 2008, early 2009, for those of you who were around at that point, that was kind of where I was at. You know, um, I have joked many times that after becoming the pastor in 2007, I uh, successfully shrunk the church down to almost half its size. Quite impressive, if you want to know the truth. Uh, yeah, by the time we got to uh, the end of 2008, I mean, things were, were looking pretty bleak. By, by, in fact, December of 2008, not that... Not that numbers matter, but numbers sometimes tell stories. And I think in this case, numbers tell a story. By the end of 2008, December of 2008, we were averaging 73 people per Sunday. In January of 2009, we were averaging 76 people per Sunday. In fact, the entire first quarter of 2009, I think we only averaged about 79 people per week. And to put that in perspective, the only times that were lower than that, both in terms of a month and a quarter, 
was the very first month Cornerstone existed when 50 people came over from Colonial to plant us and the very first quarter we existed. Never before had we been so small and so we were just like, boo, doo, 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 problems and people leaving and oh, it wasn't a lot of fun. But do you, do you want to know what story those numbers tell us in the end? The story those numbers tell us is that God was working. So we didn't understand that at the moment, because sometimes when you're in the midst of something, you can't see the real picture of what's going on. But the real picture of what was going on at that moment was that God was working personally. Not that I can confirm this for you, just my own gut feeling, is that God was refining Cornerstone during that time. He was sort of whittling us down to our committed core group. We didn't have any clue <laughs> what we were doing. We didn't know where we were going, but we were together by the time we got to the bottom of that. And, and it was actually, in that sense, a very sweet time because I think God was teaching us, I'll, I'll speak just for the elders, but I think he was teaching us to be dependent on him and to realize all that we did and did not know, and it was more that we, what we did not know than what we did. And, and like so many other lessons in life, sometimes you learn best trial by fire, right? I mean, it's just, I don't know, some of us are hard learners, and I guess that was the way for us. And while we still had a lot to learn, we, we really did begin to turn a corner in spring of 2009 or so. Cornerstone began to grow and grow and grow, and while we were excited by that, we haven't had like super big growth, but it's been constant. We were excited by that, but at the same time, we then learned that growth brings its own problems, right? Sometimes when you're in one area, you think the grass will be greener. Sometimes when you're in the other one, you look back and almost miss the old times. Uh, growth has its own problems. We, we still didn't know what our purpose was. We still didn't know what our vision for the future should be. We were doing a lot of stuff, but some of it was kind of aimless. We just, we, we, we were all together. We were kind of like meandering in a direction. And so finally here in 2009, 10, the questions that we were asking back in 2008 started coming back up. What is our purpose? What should we be doing? What should we be focusing on? Where should we be going? And so we set out again to answer them. This time, though, at Ed's suggestion, we gave it six hours, not four. Made all the difference. Uh, <laughs> now, this time we talked and we prayed and we debated and we argued for months. Months. I have uh, scribblings in a notebook from um, early 2010 about this subject. We have emails and funny diagrams and weird proposals over a period of months that we were talking about this and just going over it and mulling it and mulling it and trying to figure something out and what we, how to say it and think about it and understand it in a, in a way that was biblical and made sense. And it doesn't sound like that should be so hard, but for some reason, maybe because we're just foolish men, it was. And then, completely unexpectedly, God gave us the statement that we were looking for. It was when we had started preaching through, I had started preaching through the book of Colossians. This is like three or four sermon series ago. We were there in chapter one, and we found our purpose statement. It comes, of course, as all of you should well know by now, because this one has been repeated many, many times purposefully. Uh, it came out of these verses here in Colossians chapter one, verses 28 and 29, where Paul is laying out his own personal ministry purpose statement. Uh, he, he has one single mission to proclaim Christ. He has a very broad audience as to everyone. And the goal in all of that is to see people be made perfect in Jesus. That's to be made like him. And so he works. He works hard, but he also recognizes that it's God who's working in him. And so here we were in Colossians 1, finding the best expression of everything we were thinking wrapped up 
in the pages of Scripture. It shouldn't be a shock, but it was, it was like an epiphany had occurred for us. Like, ah, like angels sang, I think, at that moment. And uh, there we were after years, years of needing something like this. Finally, finally, God sort of brought all of our hearts together, and we could see it so clearly right here in Colossians chapter 1. But then we learned something. Again, because we don't know a lot, we learned something. Something's probably obvious to everyone else. Figuring out your purpose, particularly as a church, is not the end of the conversation. It's actually just the beginning. Because once you know your purpose, uh, it brings up a lot of other questions. If I could use a business illustration for just a moment, imagine for a moment that I am the owner of a company. We're a, a widget maker. We make lots of great widgets. And I say that our company's purpose is to be the best widget maker in the entire world. Okay, great. I know my purpose. I want to be the best widget maker in the entire world. Well, now what kinds of questions begin to come up in your minds? Well, number one, what does it mean to be the best? What am I going to have to do to even answer that question? Well, maybe I have to look at all the other widget companies and see what they do. And how can I be better than them? How can I make a better product? How can I do it cheaper, faster, quicker, get it to market? And you know, mar I got to look at all this stuff and figure out what does it mean to be the best? Uh, here's another question that would come out of that. How, how exactly then would I get there? Once I know what I'm aiming at, what steps do I need to take? Do I need to open a location here, change this process there, rethink this, redo that? What, it's got to get practical if it's going to get done, and so I've got to answer those kinds of questions. Your purpose tells you why you exist and what your big picture destination is, but it doesn't necessarily tell you what it is you're going to be when you get there, nor how to get there in the first place. And so back to Cornerstone, as we began to develop our purpose, we were asking ourselves the same questions, right? You know, it's great. We have a purpose. Uh, we want to make people like Jesus. What does that mean? And so, uh, and then how, how exactly are we going to get there? Well, we spent time answering that question. What does it mean to be like Christ as you look through the New Testament? What does that look like? And so out of that came what we call our five core values. I won't explain them, just say them, truth, love, community, service, mission. We want those five elements to permeate everything we do as a church, and hopefully they do. We want people to be growing in those areas of Christ-likeness. And once we defined our purpose, and once we had our, our question about what that looks like answered, then the question became how. Well, what things do we need to do now? What things need to change? What steps do we need to take? What, what crazy ideas do we need to try? And it was from those questions that we crafted a vision about how we wanted to carry out our purpose here in Hampton Roads, and that is where that series in early 2013 came from. That was why we titled it The Foundation and Future of Cornerstone. We laid out our foundation. Who are we? What's our purpose? What does that mean? And then we laid out a future. And the reason that was so significant for us was because it it represented the first time in our history as a church where we weren't simply looking back at who we were and trying to like deal with things from there, nor were we simply looking around at what God was doing right at that moment, but we were really trying to turn our, our, our look to the future and what God could do with us. And that was the first time we'd really done that. Well, here we are now, three years later, and I'm happy to report to you that out of all of that story I just told, some things haven't changed. For example, our purpose and those core values have not changed in the slightest. We feel more committed to those things today, in fact, than we ever have before. But even though those things haven't changed, other things have, namely us as elders. We've changed our view as to how we should move forward with our vision. And so 
To explain that to you, let me just very quickly remind you of what I presented three years ago. Three years ago, in that series, after we laid out the purpose and value and stuff, I presented on behalf of the elders a course of action for moving into the future that we called the city parish model. How many of you were even here in 13 to remember that? How many of you understood it at the time? Excellent. All right. Um, The city parish model is an attempt to leverage the strengths of two other ministry strategies into one kind of hybrid one that tries to take advantage of their strengths and, and not take some of their weaknesses with them. The two other models that it's trying to blend is the church planting model and the multi-site model. In a church planting model, churches attempt to grow and to reach their area with the gospel by starting new autonomous local churches in their area, okay? So where people can gather on Sundays for corporate worship. So what you end up with, uh, you know, like if we were to plant a church and have one out in Kimsville, one out in Great Neck, one in Ghent, one down in Hickory, something like that, what you would end up with is multiple churches meeting in multiple locations, each with multiple teachers, you know, one at each theoretically, plus multiple leadership teams that oversee each of those. They're autonomous. Uh, Cornerstone exists today because of this very model. We were planted by Colonial Baptist Church in 2001, so we're here as a result of that model. We had nothing against the model except its one big downside is that it's really hard. I mean, it's really hard. It can be slow and painful cost a lot, and I don't mean just money, it costs you people, it costs you energy, it costs you resources, leadership, time, etc. And so that was one model that we had looked at. Another model we looked at was the multi-site model. And in that approach, churches attempt to grow and to reach their area with the gospel by opening up satellite campuses around the area where people can gather on Sunday mornings to worship. So in that model, you have just one church It happens to meet in multiple locations. People can go whatever is closest to them. Uh, But it's normally led by one main teacher. He'll be present in one spot, maybe, you know, video sent, whatever, out somewhere else. And there's normally just one leadership team that oversees the whole. The big downsides of that model, not that this has to be uh, the case, but it often seems like it is, is that it tends to be focused on a man. It tends to be very man-centered around whoever that teacher is and, and their particular talents and gifts, and we didn't really like that. The other big problem there is it can very easily take on a, a disconnected, almost corporate kind of feel to it that doesn't really fit our vision of the church. And so the city parish model was an attempt to, to leverage some of the strengths without taking some of their weaknesses. In the city parish model, churches attempt to grow and reach their area with the gospel by opening up satellite campuses where they can be in people's communities and people would gather there on Sundays for worship. And in many ways, that is far easier than planting a church. I mean, just to have a campus somewhere and to be able to do some things because you get to leverage the, the strength of the whole, the resources of the whole as you do this. And so even if one is maybe on the weak side financially, the, the larger group can cover that. And so that's a little bit on the easier side. Um, but to avoid being man-centered, rather than having just one main teacher who's sort of broadcast out everywhere, each satellite campus has its own teacher. And within each of those campuses, you would also have a, a group of elders, maybe, who were specifically responsible for the people in that campus, even though that together they all kind of come together and oversee the whole. So it's kind of a hybrid leadership. So you end up with one church in multiple locations with multiple teachers and a hybrid leadership approach. It sounds complicated. It kind of is, but it's also got some strengths. And that was the idea we presented. And then along with that, we presented six action items. Uh, Number one, we wanted to hire Jordan, which we did. Number two, reintroduce deacons, which we're still working on. Three, 
calling new elders, which we've done and will continue to do. Fourth was considering two services. I said that in 2013 and listened for the gasp, and it came. Number five was filling all service needs, which I don't think will ever be complete until Jesus returns. And number six was retooling community groups because we wanted to make some changes, and we did uh, in those areas. And outside of that, we did a few other things. Uh, number one, for example, we have tried to accelerate our repayment of the mortgage on this building so that we could be uh, free to turn all of our financial resources toward the vision as soon as possible. We hired Chris part-time to give him experience in teaching and in some upfront leadership stuff. Uh, we restarted a leadership training program where we're not just training current community group leaders, but also future community group leaders as well. And throughout all of these three years, we have continued to talk and pray and think and talk and pray and think and talk and pray and think. And it was during this process that we began to have some doubts and some reservations about some of the things that we had presented to you back in 2013. Now, let me be very clear about what the doubts are not before I tell you what the doubts are. First, they were not doubts about the model itself per se, and I'll explain to you why. It's because if I have been become convinced of anything in the last three years, I am more convinced today than I ever was that God always works in spite of us and never because. More convinced of that than I ever have been. There is no single ministry strategy that is closer to the heart of God or that he blesses more than others as if somehow we figured out the secret that every other church couldn't quite figure out, right? And so it doesn't matter which model you choose. It doesn't matter how you move forward. The reality is, is that God always works in spite of us, not because of us. So he works through a variety of churches. He works through big churches and little churches. He works through uh, complex churches and very simple churches, relational and attractional, old school, new school. It doesn't matter. If you see God at work in any church, it is an act of his grace. Make no mistake about that. So it's not the model itself is the problem, because whether we pick City Parish or anything else, God is not going to share his glory with any church or with any model ever. Clear on that? It's not the model. Second, and this may say, sound a little strange at first, but just hear me out. The doubts were also not about our ability to do it. And I may be wrong, Maybe I'm overconfident. I have been accused of that before, but um, I'm pretty certain that we have enough smart and dedicated people sitting in this room that we could do just about anything we put our minds to, humanly speaking, um, if we really wanted to. I'm pretty sure that, that we could get it done. I mean, there's, there's a lot of ways that I still think the city parish approach is easier in some respects. Other ways, it's harder. But overall, I'm pretty sure we could do it. In fact, I feel confident that we could. And therein lies the beginning of the problem. You see, our study of Mark, you thought we were done. <laughs> we're back. <laughs> our study of Mark, uh, it changed us. Individually, I hope, but also collectively as a group of elders, it had an impact on us beyond some of the things we had originally even thought might happen. And if I had to to try to explain to you what it was in Mark that began to change our vision for how we reach Hampton Roads with the gospel, what it was in Mark that, if I could just boil it down to a single short phrase, it would be this. It would be the seemingly reversed values of Jesus' kingdom. The seemingly reversed values of Jesus' kingdom. I mean, just think about kingdom building for a moment. Whenever man attempts to build a kingdom, whether it's a personal kingdom, a business kingdom, a church kingdom, a... <laughs> A national kingdom, what kinds of words come to mind? Glory, power, greatness. And yet when Jesus came and he announced his kingdom, 
at every single point and in every single term, turn, he said the opposite. Instead of glory, he talked about suffering. Instead of power, he talked about weakness. Instead of greatness, he talked about leastness. The values in Jesus' kingdom are at complete odds with the values of the kingdoms of this world. And so we started to ask ourselves some questions. And just to be clear, the questions we asked weren't all in one fell swoop, nor were they also clearly articulated as how I'm about to present them to you. But, but these were the questions that began to go through our minds. First, was there a sense in which we were in danger of building a kingdom for Cornerstone? See, whether we intended it or not, we feared that the very practice of, of opening up campuses in and around the Hampton Roads area would almost begin to give the impression either to ourselves or others that somehow we were building the Cornerstone brand and not the kingdom of God. And that became more and more concerning to us over time. Again, not that that would have been our intention, but, but it's something we very much do not want to do. We, we do not want Cornerstone to be great in the eyes of man at all. We want to pursue being the least. We don't want to be known. In fact, we would genuinely and sincerely pray that we could spend our lives and die and no one have ever heard about this church or any of us. If anyone leaves here and they talk about how great Cornerstone is, we have, we have failed. And so we should actively pursue being the least of all. Second, we feared that there was a real sense in which we were in danger of being self-sufficient. And if I could just share a couple of just very personal, very personal thoughts. I'm not speaking on behalf of the elders now. They always get scared when I say this kind of thing. But uh, if I could share just a few very personal thoughts, I'll, I'll try to help you understand what I mean by that. Not, not to make Cornerstone's story about me in any way, but as I look back on 2007, 8, and 9, I'll be honest, personally, I don't have a lot of happy memories from that time. It was a very difficult time, very difficult uh, I already said, I thought we were, the church was going to die. I thought there was a real possibility that I had moved my family here for for nothing and that it would all fall apart and I'd be sitting there thinking, what did I do? Lord, why did you bring me here? And so by the time we came out of that, and even by the time we got to 2012-13, um, just speaking personally, I still was kind of like emotionally not over that difficult period yet. You know, effectively, we had replanted the church in 2007. Think about it, everything changed. The name changed, leadership changed, doctrine changed. I mean, everything changed. It was really hard and the thought of Going back into something like that was just like odious to me. There's got to be something out there that's better than that. And yet, over time, even in the past three years, I've begun to understand all that God was actually doing during that time that didn't seem so fun. You know? You know, the reality is, is that the only reason that Cornerstone exists today is because God sustained it. You want to know the real story of Cornerstone? It's the story of God sustaining a church that had no business being sustained because the leadership didn't know what it was doing, and the people didn't know what they were doing, and we were so small, and it just didn't seem like it should make it, and yet here we are. In our weakness, God showed himself strong. In our insufficiency, God made himself sufficient. And so the question is, why would we now choose to rely on ourselves if both our own experience and the teaching of Scripture is that he works through weakness to bring power. Isn't his grace sufficient? Isn't his power made perfect in weakness? Doesn't he use the weak to confound the strong and the foolish to confound the wise? So if we are given the choice to choose between strength and weakness, 
what should we choose? Our flesh will choose strength every time. But Jesus' words were clear in Mark. Power comes through weakness. And then finally, along those same lines, I think we realized that trying to avoid the suffering of certain things was, quite frankly, unbiblical. And now, for what we're talking about here, when I use the word suffering, I should put like quotation marks like this in it. I mean, they're really big quotation marks because the suffering we're talking about is not really suffering at all. What we're talking about here is our willingness as a church, as individuals, as families, and as a corporate body to sacrifice ourselves for the purpose of the kingdom of God. I've mentioned before that I've enjoyed reading uh, the letters of John Newton, the guy who wrote Amazing Grace, to a young pastor named John Ryland Jr., He's giving Ryland advice and counsel about pastoral ministry. And in one of those letters, he likens uh, ministry. He's doing this personally, but I would apply it corporately. He likens ministry to a, a candle. You know, what is the purpose of a candle? It's not, and some of you have these, and these are worthless candles. You have candles sitting on your, uh, in your house as decorations. They've never been burnt, and you never plan to burn them. They're worthless candles. Because what's the purpose of a candle? It's to be burnt. It's to give light. It's a candle. If you, go, if you have one of these in your house, I think we have one. There's like an empty Yankee candle jar that we just haven't thrown away for some reason. And all that's left in the bottom is a little burnt nub of a, a wick and a little bit of residue. That is a candle that has served its purpose well. It did what it was made to do. And Newton's point to Ryland is that's how you should view your ministry. By the time you come to the end, there should be nothing left but a little burnt nub of a wick and just little residue. Candles don't get bigger over time. They get smaller. They don't carry a lot with them. They give a lot away. Well, I think we should view our ministry that way too, both personally and corporately. In the end, we want to burn up. You know, I used to think about Cornerstone dying in a bad way. Now I think about Cornerstone dying in a good way. I think there should probably come a day when Cornerstone ceases to exist and there's nothing left, not a trace. We burn up. We did what we were supposed to do. We, we gave all that we could give. We, we sacrificed all we could sacrifice, and we're done. <laughs> Candles come to an end, and I think ministries probably should too at some point. We should be actively looking for ways to sacrifice ourselves. Not that I'm advocating that we're going to end. I'm just making a point here. But we should be actively looking for ways to sacrifice ourselves over the next 10, 20, 30 years for the purpose of building the kingdom of God here in Hampton Roads. I mean, what's it going to cost us? Money? Look, we're never going to have golden urinals and crystal communion cups, okay? There's no point of like trying to pile up money here. We don't want to build big buildings. So what's it going to cost us money? Imagine a day when like the majority of our budget could go to just the kingdom, just building the kingdom in Hampton Roads. That would be so cool. We can give up people that we genuinely love. That's hard because you get close to people and you love them and you don't want to say goodbye to them, but they're not ours. They don't belong to us. So giving them up is not, it may be painful, but it's right. We can give up leaders that we spent time training and investing in. We're going to give up servants who make our lives easier. What are we going to give up? Comfort and convenience? You understand why I'm putting suffering in huge quotes here? Because whatever afflictions we think about for ourselves and for our church in the future, they are light indeed. Jesus was very clear. Glory comes through suffering. So let's not shy away from whatever suffering, quote-unquote, we envision. Jesus certainly didn't. This is why, folks, after much thought and prayer, the elders finally made a decision to officially walk away from our plans to pursue the city parish model and have decided in its place 
to pursue what we view as being a more difficult, slow, and costly approach of just starting new churches in and around our area. It's not very glamorous. It's going to be kind of hard at points, but, you know, we want to embrace leastness. We want to embrace weakness. We want to embrace suffering so that Jesus can make his name great, not Cornerstone's name great, so that Jesus can so show himself powerful and so that he can get all the glory. Look, you say, you know, Stacy, there are hundreds of churches. I drive by like 10 on my way here. What do you, why are we thinking about church planting? I get that. I, I understand the footprint, the, the ecclesiastical footprint of Hampton Roads very well. But recognize that the vast majority of the churches that are in Hampton Roads are not faithful to the gospel and they are not faithful to the scriptures. So we have ample opportunity to reach this area with the gospel, whether it's, it's starting a new church or maybe if God would open a door, there's no plans to this, but if he would bring something along where we could go in and revitalize an existing church, provide them with leadership and people and direction and, and then set them free to go and reach their area with the gospel. We're not in competition. There's no kingdom here for us to build. We don't have anything to protect. And so we have ample opportunity. We're not going to pretend that we know exactly what this looks like or exactly how this should work, or that we've got everything laid out right, because we certainly don't. We didn't three years ago, and we don't now. But we wanted you to understand why we're choosing to walk away from what we said three years ago and to pursue what we have laid out for you now. And so tonight, starting at 5.30, dinner's at 5, starting at 5.30, we're going to take some time in this room here just to present to you the, the steps that we have in mind, the steps that were in that document that we gave you you haven't read it, go home and read it so you can understand. But we want to answer some questions, give you an opportunity to answer questions. Just, we just want to have a family conversation okay, about all of this stuff that God has been doing. But throughout everything, our hope and our prayer is that God will use our weak and foolish efforts to work through us <laughs> so that we can proclaim Christ to everyone and present everyone here in Hampton Roads perfect in Jesus Christ. Will you bow your heads? Father, this has no doubt been a very poor attempt to explain all that you have been doing in our hearts and minds over the past really year, year and a half as elders. Our desire here is to bring glory to you. We are foolish. The verse there in 2 Chronicles that I, I read just a couple of Sundays ago at the picnic is still very much on my heart and mind. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you, and we want to be used. We want to be the candle. We just want to just burn up. It, it, there's nothing here for us to build. There's nothing. Nothing in this building, nothing in this church. This is not your kingdom. Your kingdom is so much bigger than this. We just want to be a part of it, and we want to be useful in it. And so we don't claim to have any great ideas. In fact, we would very much claim to have very few we don't know the path forward exactly. We've got ideas, but you're going to direct, and we need to be humble and willing to change and follow whatever you open up before us, and we just acknowledge that this morning. Our desire is to be least so that you can be great. Our desire is to be weak so that you can show yourself powerful. Our desire is to, is to suffer in the very minimal ways that we may potentially have to so that you can get all the glory. May that happen in us and everything we do in Jesus' name. Amen.